And good morning. Whoa, hey, there you go. Uh, my name is Pastor Derek. Welcome to uh, Connect, and so glad you could be with us. We're going to begin our series uh, again in just a second, but before I do, I just want to highlight uh, a very important person in my life, my family, and our spiritual family. You may not realize this, but the queen of the parsonage, as they used to say in the old days, uh, her birthday was yesterday. So my wife, Stacy's birthday was yesterday. And so we're going to sing to her, okay? You ready? Happy birthday to you. Sorry. Uh, I've been out of music ministries a while. To you. Happy birthday, dear Stacy. Happy birthday to you. And many more. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Hallelujah. You guys uh, ready to continue our series, The Last Days? You can get your worship guides out. Uh, you can follow us on version. Just put the zip code in or our church name. I think the series would best be preached right here. <sighs> it's ironic that the topic today fits this chair. You guys may not realize that, but today we're going to talk about uh, the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and if you are kind of new here, let me just say as I kind of unpack the series a little bit, uh, the last days has been kind of a common request for to me from you know participants in this church, family, frequent flyers, parishioners. Uh, for a long time, just kind of throwing questions at me about kind of the last days, um, uh, eternal issues, eternity, separation from God, ultimate separation from God, eternity with God, heaven, hell, uh, judgment day, return of Christ, all those kind of things. And so I want you to know that I'm doing this because you, you keep asking. And um, I've avoided this, if I'm honest, for a long, long time because it doesn't seem <laughs> user-friendly. It doesn't seem um, something that uh, people want to hear. But deep down, people want answers to these questions. And so I want you to know that I don't have any, I don't have any agenda. I don't have any purpose other than just kind of state the facts as, uh, as they are seen in scriptures, reveal them to you, and then kind of let you decide what you do with them. Today is kind of one of those topics where I was just in the back asking the Lord to help me do a good job. Um, a lot of times people come off the first service and they'll say, good job, Pastor. And then I have my staff will come to me and go, just do it again. Um, and so I was just saying, Lord, help me do that again, you know, and um, please help me do it even better if I could. But one of the things I was getting was this picture of like, I take a lot of vitamins, by the way, and um, I was, I can swallow like 25 vitamins with just a swig of water. And everybody... I was just taking about 15 just a little while ago, and Rodrigo was watching me, and I was like, watch this, bing, gone. Uh, some people have a hard time swallowing pills. How many of you hand if you have a hard time swallowing pills? Oh, you sissies out there. Oh, you sissies. I'm just kidding. But th this message is one of those kind of big pills. And I tell my kids this all the time, when you're not, you know, if you could just, if you could just swallow this pill, it would help you. Take this supplement, it could help you. Eh, it's just too hard because whatever. Just, it gets stuck sometimes in the way, and they need like 17 gallons of water. If you can swallow this pill, it can really help you. It can really motivate you, I guess is what I like to say at the outset. I also want you to know that, um, you know, our church is very relational in its, uh, I'm going to get away from that now because it's hard to be serious. Um, our church is very relational in its uh, DNA, but at the same time, one of the things that sometimes 
is misinterpreted in a relational environment is it's just not going to tell you everything you want to hear. Sometimes it's going to tell you things you need to hear. And so my, my job as a pastor is not to be a popularist, but to be a pastor and just unpack scriptures, put them out there, and, and let you kind of um, navigate the application of them. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a bunch of Bible here in the beginning. Um, there are two key texts that I'm going to go to in a little bit, 1 Corinthians 3 and Revelation 20. But I want to read to you some scriptures about D-Day. I'm just going to call it D-Day. You could call it Judgment Day. This is from the New King James. Are you ready? Are you out there? Talk back at me. Say, yes, sir. All right, you're ready. Good. All right, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's how they say it in the South. 2 Peter 2.9, it says this. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day, everybody say the day, of judgment. 2 Peter 3, 7 says, But the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day, everybody say the day again, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I say unto you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Isn't that one you just want to put on your refrigerator? That scripture? That's a bumper sticker that will just win friends and influence people, won't it? It's still in the Bible, though. Hebrews 9.27, one of the most famous scriptures related to this uh, subject, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. This is a big subject. It's not a popular subject. I cannot wait for this particular day to be over, but I'm going to deliver it, and I'm going to deliver it with conviction. And so um, let me just answer a few questions for you as we kind of talk about this, because this series is not just to talk about prophetic sequence. When we talk about the last days, everybody wants to know how it's all going to roll out, what's going to happen here, what's going to happen there. And we get all caught up in the global side of it, and we don't get caught up into the how it applies to me personally. The last day, what's really most important about the last days is my last days. It's really important not just that we understand the eschatological events, that we not just understand are we pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial, post-millennial. It's way more important than that is are you ready? Are you getting others ready in the process? Because God is coming back and we need to be ready for the day ultimately when we'll stand before God. And so, you know, I sit on the chair in jest, but there is one who sits on the throne and we are all accountable to him. So the question is this in your notes, is there a day of judgment coming? The answer is yes. Will everyone be judged? The answer is yes. Will believers be judged? Believers. The answer is yes. Will unbelievers be judged? The answer is yes. The most important question in the sequence is, but will, listen to this all the way through, but will we be judged by grace or works? Listen to me carefully. The answer is yes. We'll be judged by both. Listen, I'm not saying that salvation is grace and works. I'm not saying that salvation is grace and works, but there is a believer's judgment and there is an unbeliever's D-Day or judgment. But both judgments are about works. And I'm going to show you a few other texts. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. This is one I put to memory years ago, but it said, For God will bring every work into judgment, every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Oh. That is tough. That is a big pill to swallow. 
Revelation 20, 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, Hades, another word for hell, delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. 1 Peter 1, 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, without favoritism, just based on works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in the fear of the Lord, or in fear. Matthew 16, 27 for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Lastly, Revelation twenty-two twelve 12 says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me. That's the reward, is to be with me. To give everyone according to his work. Man. Praise the Lord. So glad I came to connect this morning. In these particular texts, it's basically saying, it's saying to each one of us, to every one of us, uh, I'm in each, you're in every. We're all part of this. And, uh, and you are, in other words, God is going to judge each and every one of us according to his or her works. The question is, are we saved by works? The answer is emphatically 100%. Are we saved by works? No, we're not saved by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for it was by grace that we have been saved through faith, explicitly states, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Everybody say, not of works. So are we saved by works? No, it's not of works. It is a gift of grace. 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 Because if we could save ourselves, and frankly, some people have chosen to believe something different than what this text says and what Jesus did for us, and as a result, they're trying to earn or deserve it, and one day we'll try to stand before God, perhaps, and say, uh, why, you know, if, if the question was to be posed, why should I let you in? Why, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? Some people that have the answer, because I did more good than bad, are going to be really disappointed, according to this scripture. And if you think about it, you know, and I have, that's, that's why I've come to accept grace. And I want to talk about two sides or f- many facets of grace, maybe a little bit this morning. But if, you, if, you sent, if, if somebody gave their son to basically get on death row for you, if we were, if we, if we were uh, because of our, our sin, because of our mistakes, uh, uh, sentenced to capital punishment, and really that's what the Bible says, we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God which is another whole thing about grace that sometimes we don't understand because we're spending most of our time comparing ourselves to other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as he is, and now I'm not as bad as she is. Well, there's somebody that you're badder than. But sometimes we don't spend our time, uh, you know, measuring ourselves against somebody that's gooder than us. If that's bad English, it still works. It's still good preaching. And so what happens is we're comparing ourselves to other people, and that's the problem. That's what religion does. Religion spends most of its time comparing itself to others, but we're supposed to compare ourselves to the perfection, the majesty, the glory of God. And Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of that glory, that perfection, that majesty. So when we compare ourselves to God, we are all way, way, way out of bounds. And, and sin has a consequence. Whether it's one or a thousand, it weighs the same when you're separating, when you're comparing yourself to God. And so we all fall short. We all need a mulligan. We all need somebody to pay our debt. And we can't do that because we're not perfect. God was. And so he sent his perfect sacrifice, his perfect son to be a sacrifice for us. And he did it. It was grace. It was unmerited favor. Do we deserve it? No. Was it precisely what we needed? Yes. And to those that will accept that and receive that by faith, then we can be uh, eternally with God forever. It's a wonderful thing. Grace is incredible. God will judge and reward each one of us according to our works, yes, 
So, but how do we explain, though, saved by grace, but judged by works? This has been a confusing topic in the church and in religion for centuries. How do we explain saved by grace, but that we're judged by works? There's been a lot of theology and doctrine about this, and sometimes it gets confusing. And one of the reasons sometimes I don't talk about certain subjects, if I'm honest, is if I can't understand it and unpack it in terms that I can understand, then I'm sure as I convinced that there'll be other people like me that can't understand it. Some people are smarter than I am, but if I can't communicate it, if I can't simplify it, then typically I don't talk about it. And so I've just, I think that I can put this into terms that are theologically responsible at the same time simplified. And I think man has a tendency to overcomplicate things and God likes to oversimplify things. And so if we're going to be able to separate these things, and I'll explain why in a minute, here's how you can do it. You have to be able to distinguish between two words. Belief, everybody say belief and behavior. This is where people all get hung up. We, we don't separate these two. We muddy these two. We mix these two things up. And so you can write this down. Our belief determines where we spend eternity. Our belief determines where we spend eternity. Our behavior determines how we spend eternity. Our behavior determines how we spend eternity. And we're going to unpack that second statement. Our belief alone, all by itself exclusive, determines where. Our behavior alone, all by itself, determines how we spend eternity, wherever we are. Is separated from God or with God? Our behavior affects that. In, in other words, in heaven, we're going to be rewarded by, by and for our works. And in hell, which we talked about in week one and week three, we're going to be punished for our works. And let me just say something about hell for all you people that are coming in for the first time. I wish that I could uh, preach the, the, the first message and the third message to you so you could have the context for this series. But please understand that uh, one of the questions we asked, answered in week one, asked and answered in week one is a question that people have thought, people have posed, people have said sometimes in an accusatory tone, and I get it, but uh, they say, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? In other words, if there, if, there's, if there is a hell, if there is a heaven, how could God send people that he loves there? And, and first of all, I believe in a heaven and I believe in a hell. And I think the Bible clearly communicates that there is both. And, and there's been a veering away from that in the last 10 years and all kinds of uh, different positions on that that are extra biblical and not biblical. So we answer biblical questions with the Bible here. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's so quiet. Um, and so in week one, though, that question should be really asked with a question. There's a whole bunch in between in this message, but basically the, sometimes the wisest things to do is answer questions with questions. The question really is, how could we reject a loving God? God is so loving. And so we, we, basically, we basically talked about his, not only his word, his, the law, but we, the law of God, but we also talked about the nature of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. All, the Bible is explicit, and his life, Jesus' life, demonstrates that he's a loving God. How can we reject a loving God and his plan for us? So he made it simple. He made it easy for us to be with him eternally. It's just belief in what he did, what he accomplished. Living for God isn't so easy, but living with God forever is. He can change your heart in a moment, but change your life over a process of time. It's a journey. That's what we actually invite people to come into that journey at our church. It's a big part of our vision. So 
Where you go is completely and ultimately dependent upon your belief in Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear about that. But there are two judgments that we're going to talk about today. And the first one is the judgment seat of Christ. The second is the great white throne judgment. Sometimes people call it the judgment of faith and then the judgment of works. That's a simplified way of being able to state it. But at the judgment seat of Christ, every person there is a believer. At the great white throne judgment, every person there is an unbeliever. And this is what most people sometimes fail to understand. Some people ask, why are we going to have judgment if a person there at the great white throne judgment is an unbeliever and they're already going to hell? And why would you have a judgment at the judgment seat of Christ if every person there is going to heaven? I don't get that. It's a reasonable question. I understand that. The reason is this judgment, either one, is not to determine your belief. That's already been determined by the time you're there. You're already, you're already in attendance at one or the other based on your belief. But at each judgment, and I will unpack this scripturally, at each judgment, your behavior will be judged. Whichever judgment you end up at is determined by your belief. But at each judgment, your, judgment, your, your behavior will be judged. Here's, here's, kinda, here's the big reveal. Here's the big idea. Here's the big thing I want you to take away as I unpack this scripturally and make it crystal clear for you. This life matters. How you live this life now, it matters in eternity. It matters. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Being with him forever, that's a belief issue. The rewards, good or bad, is also a big deal, and that's determined by how we live this life. And I hope this motivates you. I hope that you can swallow this great big pill, and you can see how incredibly important it is and how much it can affect your life. Because according to Scripture, if you really believe... According to Scripture, if you really uh, not only understand this in your, in your noggin, but you actually let it get down into your heart, it should and could alter your behavior permanently. Progressively would be a better way to say that. Let me explain it this way. God's grace, grace, it's not just a nice girl's name, something we say before we eat. Grace, his divine enablement. Grace. When you understand, when you understand that you had a debt you couldn't pay and somebody paid that debt for you, it makes you want to do something nice. When somebody pays your meal, I don't know if anybody ever had somebody pay your meal before. I have. I like to pay for other people's meals. You're like, well, good. Can you take me to lunch after church? No. <laughs> but but um, if you ever had somebody pay your meal, you want to do something nice. Typically, you want to do it right back to them because you feel like you owe them. But a person that really gives it, truly gives it, they don't want, they don't want anything back. They, they just did it for the joy of giving. The idea is to pay, you want to, then when you can't give it back, you typically want to do, pay it forward, pay it forward. So that's what grace is like. If you really receive grace, there's something in you that realizes, I didn't deserve this, but I received it, so now I want to do something. Now I want to give something. Now I want to, I want to pay that, that life forward because somebody paid for my life. My life's debt and sentencing was taken care of by someone else. So grace really understood, and I, and I sometimes question whether it really is by us, should motivate us. A lot of times I sit front and center with people and their problems front row, because you're a pastor sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you just just dump, just dump all kinds of stuff real fast. Other times, it's more reserved. A lot of times, it's reserved because they don't understand grace. In other words, they're holding back, kind of opening up, because they think I'll judge them. They think when they know what I've done or what the mistakes I've made, that I'll judge them. Now, I'm not saying this to toot my own horn at all, and I can't qualify this necessarily, but what's going through my head is this. Why would you think I judge you? I mean, God's forgiven me of so much. It's unbelievable. I have no reason to judge you. 
I might be able to tell you something you may not want to hear. I might have some advice for you that could save your life. I might have a pill that if you'd suck it down with this water, could actually heal you. But I don't judge you. And really what's happening is a person that doesn't understand grace judges other people and can't receive God's wisdom. It can't swallow the pill. Are you tracking with me? Grace not only causes us to judge, a lack of understanding of grace can not only cause us to judge other people, cause us to judge ourselves. It causes us not to live a life, a godly life. But when we understand grace, we really got it in the inside of us. We don't judge other people. We love other people. We selflessly give to other people. We want to please God, not prove something to God. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I always thought that said, God, I love you. And yeah, well, then he said, prove it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So to, 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 when you understand grace, you focus on God's love for you. You don't focus on his law that's trying to control you, constrain you, but actually to protect you and release you. This is good preaching. I don't care what you say out there. This is going to help some people out there. So God's grace, his unmerited favor, gives us, this is in your notes, I think, the desire and the power to serve God. So if you're going to be able to swallow this pill, you've got to be able to understand God's grace. When you understand God's grace, it'll give you and empower you, it'll give you desire and it'll give you the power to serve God. You've got to get grace. You've got to understand why you even get to be with God forever, why he wants you to be eternally with him, because he loves you so much and, has, and nothing you could do, good or bad, could make him love you anymore. It's not about that. So there's two judgments. Remember, we're not saved by works, but by grace. But works do matter. We're not saved uh, by, you know, uh, works. We're saved for good works. As a result of grace received, then we want to do good works. Make sense? So this, this subject is why, I, I can't help but unpack this more, but this, is, this subject is why some people um, who think they understand grace and believe in grace can... Um, they can uh, abuse it. They can take it too far. This is why you can go to, you can go to some, let's, I'll just take church, church world. You go to some churches, and this is a grace environment. This is a grace environment, you know, and the pastor's cussing like a sailor from the pulpit, you know what I mean, and they're opening up small groups with keg parties. You're saying, really? I'm telling you, that stuff happens in something. That's an extreme, all right, but there's an extreme grace. We're just under grace. We're just under grace. Well, under grace doesn't mean that we don't, it doesn't matter how we live. You just got to read the New Testament. Just see the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Old Testament, you know, it was sin to commit adultery in the New Testament. Just think about it. It's not good. It's sin. So there's certainly, it doesn't mean there's, it's a higher standard. But how do you meet a higher standard if you don't have grace to empower you to make that high and live that higher standard? Is everybody tracking with me? So you have some people, under, they're, they're living, I'm under grace, but they, ha, and they have a hard time with people that are all works-based, works-based. Then you got the flip side over here in the church world. you got people all about works, all about works, all about works. And it's super religious, and it's filled with rules, and nobody can meet them, including them. And they're the meanest Christians on the planet. You know, nobody looks happy, and everybody comes in, and the, and, the, and the world comes in from the outside. I like to call them pre-believers, but these people will call them heathen. The heathen are here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and the heathen are looking at them like, you know, why would I want that? Sign me up for some more of these rules. You know what I mean? Jesus is awesome. Doesn't look like it. And the preacher gets up there and says, I've got the joy of the Lord this morning. No, you don't. You look like you were weaned on a pickle. So, so you got these extremes. Extreme works. 
You got extreme grace, and this is how we balance it out. You have to separate belief from behavior. Are you tracking out there? So there's two judgments that really deal with this ultimately, and it's really important that we get it on this side of the equation as we are on a runway to one of these two judgments and work this stuff out. That's what God wants for us. So the first point is the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 3 in a second, but let me read these two other texts. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Are you all tracking out there? Amen? For we must all, the word says all, this is written to believers, it's written to the church, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That means everybody, every believer in this case, is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Believers, go to that judgment. That each one, everybody say each one. Say, I'm an each. Turn to your neighbor, say, you're an each. Be careful there. That each one may receive the things done in the body. In other words, while we live here on earth, you're going to receive what you've done here on earth according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Every time I read verses like that, I always hear music. Dun, dun, dun. Romans 14.10 says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all, I'm an all, we're all in the all, this is again to believers, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, we shouldn't be judging. If we understand grace, we wouldn't, we wouldn't spend our time judging our brothers. We got plenty, we got to give an account of ourselves to God, the scripture says in Romans 14. We need to examine ourselves. All right? So then in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians needs a little context. Um, you guys know that Paul wrote like virtually two thirds of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was uh, just a, uh, abnormally born, just a real, uh, when I say abnormally born, spiritually speaking. And, and let me give you background on this. In 1 Corinthians, which is actually the second letter Paul wrote, so. 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians didn't make it in the Bible. I think God saw the letter Paul wrote and said, Paul, I don't think I'll make it in here. I don't think so. I'll try it again. That's just my opinion. I think that's funny. But anyway, so, so 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. We don't have the first letter. And so, uh, but he writes a letter to a church that we, that we don't have, and they write a letter back, and 1 Corinthians is actually answering the letter uh, that he wrote back. And we know this because, I, I don't remember the exact number, but in studying five or six times in the, the Corinthians, he says things like, now concerning, now concerning the things you wrote to me. And, and another time it says, um, uh, in my earlier letter to you. So, so, so 2 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is, thir- excuse me, and yeah, for, 2 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3rd, okay? So that makes sense? So, so now, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. I just wanted to tell you how smart I was. So, and I, fig- I figured that out. I finally figured that all out. I'm just kidding. No, it matters. So now he writes a letter to the Corinthians, and, um, and, and in the whole Corinthians thing, he's doing a lot of, like, uh, correction, and he's straightening some stuff out that's going on in the church. And that's a lot of Corinthians about that. It has a lot of application to the modern church today. Um, it just has some different illustrations, but it's really similar principles. And one of the things that they're addressing amongst many is that the church, which this is what happens in the church. If the church isn't about the majors, it majors in the minors. That's what happens with things like the last days prophetic sequences, eschatological events, and all that kind of stuff. The church gets all preoccupied with that. And then we forget the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's about getting people ready. God's coming back. Like, we need to make sure that as many people as possible are going to be with him, that we're his messenger. We're the newspaper boys and newspaper girls. The good news has been printed, and it's going to sit on the end of our driveway if we don't deliver it, that the church is the delivery system for the good news. 
So we got to get it out. And so what happens is people get arguing and stuff. So the church is arguing about dumb stuff, about who led them to Christ. Was it Apollos? Was it Paul? Who should we pay honor to or attend to or listen to? And some were led by him. Some were led by that person. And Paul says, stop, don't divide over that kind of stuff. And then he teaches them, we're all going to be judged by Jesus, not Apollos or Paul. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, pick it up with me in verse 10, it says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and that's Christ. And another builds on it, and he's referring to Apollos. He came along beside me. But let each one, there's that word each one, replying to me, take heed who he builds it on, who he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We don't want to build another message. There's no new gospel, nothing like that. Now, if anyone, anyone applies to everyone, builds on this foundation, Jesus, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capitalized day, that means the D-day, judgment day, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work, that's each again, of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward in other words, you'll be rewarded for your works. Now watch this. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He will, in other words, he could lose his reward. But he himself will be saved. Again, all these are believers, yet so through fire. Now, some of this may not make sense to you, and I want to hopefully unpack the majors of it because there's a lot of good doctrine in here. But I want you to notice a couple things about this. You can be a believer... And you can build with wood, with hay, and straw. That means it's referring to things that are temporal, things that are not eternal. There's, there's a, there, as a believer, you can be with God forever, but you, can be, you, but you can be doing things that will not get a reward eternally. You can be a believer and you can build on gold and silver and precious stones. Those are referencing eternal things. Or, or you can be doing something that is eternal. Uh, another thing that it's saying here is you can be doing something that is eternal, but because of how uh, or the way you do it, you can lose your reward. Make sense? So as a believer, we can be doing something that's not eternal and not get a reward for it. As a believer, we can be doing something that is eternal and get a reward for it. As a believer, we can be doing something that's eternal, but because of how we do it, we can lose our reward for it. That's what this is saying in 1 Corinthians 3. Is everybody now with me? Let me show you how Jesus himself says you can lose your reward for a good work. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds for men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. When This is a preoccupation of man. We want people to see what we do when we do something good, right? We have this selfish tendency. When, when a picture is taken, who's the first person you look for in a picture? Yourself. When, you, when, you do, when I do something good in the kitchen, you know, take out the trash, do the dishes. I mean, it's like a party. I make an announcement. There's a megaphone. Hey, everybody, dad just took out the dishes, you know, and I expect praise. And so the thing about that kind of praise is you only get the praise of men in this life. There's nothing eternal about that. And God's instructing us to do things that get eternal rewards, not just temporary rewards. Are you tracking with me? So then he goes on to say, therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, or Pastor Derek does in the kitchen, in the synagogue, and in the streets, that they may glorify or be glorified by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward on earth. But when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. Now watch this. This is so huge. 
This, this rocks me in a good way. And your father who sees in secret will, watch this word, himself reward you openly. I want you to first notice that you can actually, again, be doing something good, eternal, and you can lose your reward. That's very important for you as Christ followers to hear that. But also notice, notice this, that God the Father says that he himself will reward you personally. I, 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 let me unpack this for you. If I think, there's a, I think there's a mindset, for those of us who've heard anything about this before, there's this, there's this idea that we're, all, that, that we're all in a huge stadium when we get to heaven, and uh, God's on the stage on his big throne, and there's billions of people out there. And he comes out from the box office seats, he sits in his chair, and this is how the rewards are going to go. Everybody listening? Yes, 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 yes. Y'all done good. Good job. And then he gets up and he goes back to the box office seats and that's it. I think there's that kind. And he's, y'all done good. And then some guy at the back says, when it finally gets to the back, says, what did he say? He said he needs more wood. It's good. No, we're not going to miss out on it. We're not going to misinterpret it. We're not going to not hear it clearly. No, it says he himself will reward you personally. God will reward you himself. I never saw this before. You will meet him personally. And if you've done a good job, it's going to be an attaboy. If you did a bad job, it's going to be a smack on the butt. Not so good. Whether you might be in, you're a family member. Listen, if, if, uh, uh, apply this to a familial context. My kids are in my family. There's nothing they can do to not be in my family. Sometimes I've thought about things that could be done. No, I'm just kidding. And probably they have thought about it. So they're, they're in the family. It's settled. At this point in time as a believer, when you're standing there and you're sitting there to be rewarded, some of us, it's going to be an awesome time. There's going to be a lot of high fives. There's going to be a lot of be a personal affirmation. It's going to be like when Jesus was baptized and God from heaven spoke and said, this is my son and who I am, well pleased. It's going to be like that. It's going to, when you get baptized, that's what happens. Not, you know, we get have baptism coming up. That's what happens. It's like a public approval, but it's going to be personal, personal approval. But the opposite of that, not that you're not in the family anymore, is this. Look at first John. Look at what could happen, though. I want to hear those words. It motivates me highly. 1 John 2.28 says, And now, little children, abide in him. What do we do between now and then? Abide in him. That, what do we do between now and then? Abide in him. That when he appears, we may have confidence, watch this wording, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So some of us, we're going to be there, and we're going to be in that grand audience, and he's going to be coming around one by one. And when he's coming over to you, some people are going to be like, I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. Cannot wait. I mean, all that stuff, you know, that nobody saw, he saw. Oh. And some of us are going to have our head down. Some of us are going to have our tail between our legs. Some of us are going to be ashamed. And I hate that, that that's, that to say that, but that's the truth. The scripture is talking to believers why would we be ashamed? I'll tell you, because many believers will be ashamed because they wasted their life 
on meaningless things. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't serve him. They didn't give their all to him. They, didn't, they, didn't, they got so tied up in bondage financially, they never gave to the kingdom and to kingdom causes. They didn't love him. They didn't walk with him. They didn't give their lives. They weren't kingdom builders. And so they were ashamed on that day. And you know what? I, I, I need to pause. You need to hear that. Because between now and then, his word, Jesus, through me possibly, is saying abide in him. If you don't go to church here another day, you heard what I said. It's important that you hear that. Do you realize that in heaven, there'll be cities in heaven? Luke chapter 19, Jesus is talking to the stewards, and one of the stewards, he said, I will put you in charge of 10 cities. Why did he say that? Because what he did in this life and what he stewarded in this life with what God gave him, he did it so well and so responsibly that when he got to heaven, he was promoted to be over 10 cities. Cities, that means when we get to heaven, it's not just kumbaya, my Lord, cheese and grapes and floating on clouds. No, there'll be no more sorrow in heaven. There'll be no more pain in heaven. Yes, that's true, but we're all going to live our lives, and we're going to live our lives and have responsibilities all at different levels. Somebody's going to be responsible for city, 10 cities, multiple cities. Somebody's going to be the mayor. Somebody's going to get paid more than 10 bucks a day and get a lot of grief. It's going to be a big deal. When I was a young boy, I remember my parents sent me to Dave Cowan's basketball camp. I loved basketball. I don't look like a basketball player, but I was. I had some sweet handles. But I remember this particular basketball camp. I had fun. I learned a lot in some, in so, in some capacity. But if, when I really got down to it, there were a lot of guys there were taking a lot more seriously than me. And if, if I really was honest, I goofed off. I goofed off. I played pranks on people, just wanted to have a good time. And, and I remember the last day of the camp, Walking into the gym, there was an assembly. I thought it was a rally. It wasn't a rally. It was an assembly, an awards ceremony. And I remember coming into the camp, and there was this long table that went all the way across the gym, and it was covered in trophies, small trophies all the way up to these great big trophies. And people were going to get awards from, for their efforts. People were going to get awards for, for how they played during, how they worked, how hard they worked during camp. Now, I was at the camp. And I got to go, and everything was settled, and I was a part of the group. But when I got there and I saw all those trophies, the first thought that went through my head was, wait a minute. Nobody told me about the trophies. I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, if I had known we could have got one of those, I would have played, I would have done a lot different. Nobody told me we were getting rewards for how we did this week. And of course, I didn't get any because of my behavior. How would you live your life if you knew, if you believed, if it went from here to here that there were rewards in heaven? How would you live your life? I wonder how many will get to heaven and be surprised, perhaps, perhaps even ashamed when they don't get any rewards. You probably get there. That's great. I think you're settling. I think you're settling for just getting there. But you might not have any rewards, and you might have very little responsibility. And the truth is there are degrees of heaven, and there are degrees of hell. Will a person, think about this, will a person who lives their life as a believer, who, who doesn't tithe, who doesn't give to the poor, who, who doesn't look out for other people, who's not selfless in their actions, who doesn't find their gift and serve in their gift, who doesn't uh, you know, lead their family well, who doesn't spend time with God and walk with God and apply that to his life and to his family and to his friendships and to his relationships, will that person receive the same reward as somebody who prioritized their life to re, to, or, or, or had their life prioritized 
prioritize such to reflect what they say they believe, and they put God first in their finances, in their interests, in their relationship, in their schedule, in their troubles. Will those two guys get the same reward? We all know the answer is no, of course not. Of course not. Remember, God is a just God. God is going to recompense believers and unbelievers according to their works. Therefore, God is he's, he's rewarding kingdom builders. This is about the kingdom. I want to motivate you to live with a kingdom mentality. Hebrews 11.6 says this. It says, you must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. See, you have to understand. If you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe he is, well, forget all this. Yeah, dismiss it. Kick it out. Follow your your religion. Follow that and follow it with all your heart. Better you be cold or hot than in the middle on this whole thing. But if you believe that he is, you also got to know he's a rewarder. He's a rewarder. Here's the next judgment, the great white throne judgment. This is a tough one. It's quiet, but hey, I'm going to keep going. I'm almost done. I'm going to show you why we call it the great white throne judgment. Here is the, the reason we call this the great white throne judgment. It's major. Watch this. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne. It's deep, isn't it? Isn't that deep? That's all we could come up with. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Watch this. And books, plural, underline or circle that, books, were opened, and another book, singular, was opened, which is called the book of life. This is a great scripture demonstrating the difference between belief and behavior. In other words, if you believe, you're in the book. If you do, your works, good or bad, are in the books. Good, bad, to ugly. I hate that point. I like you, I hate that point. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades, remember that's the word for hell, delivered up the dead and were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. So the book is if you believe the books, or whether you believe or not, are all your works or deeds are recorded there. And just a minute ago, I asked you if a believer did a lot of good or a believer did a lot of bad, would they both receive the same rewards? And the answer was no. But what about unbelievers? Unbelievers, will they receive, will unbelievers receive equal, equal uh, punishment or equal reward for their behavior? Will an unbeliever who does not give his life to Jesus, he's obstinate, he's self-assured, you know, he just, he's going to pay for his sins himself, so to speak, but he works hard, he provides for his family, um, he lives a normal life, he, he does good things for people. Will that, will that unbeliever receive the same um, uh, works are the same reward as someone who is a murderer or a rapist? Absolutely not. And the scripture proves that. Will, will an unbeliever who lived a good life but didn't accept uh, uh, the grace of God receive the same uh, uh, rewards as Hitler who killed six million people? Absolutely not. Remember, remember, on either sides of the equation, God is just. He's just. Sometimes we worry about all those people, and they're gonna, they, we think about people who have done really, really bad things, and we think they're going to get away with it. Remember, Romans 12 says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. I will avenge. You don't have to worry about that. That's what's wonderful about being a Christian, is you don't have to worry about vengeance. No, because there, there are degrees of punishment and rewards, and I'll show it to you in the Bible. 
Matthew chapter 11, follow with me in verse 21. In your notes, it says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable, that means less suffering, for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to hell. Notice what Jesus is saying here. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. In other words, Sodom would have repented. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable, less suffering, for the land of Sodom, which was burned by fire, in the day of judgment than for you. Now this is what Jesus is saying, and I try to apply it in terms that we can all understand. Jesus was the one who was doing miraculous and mighty works in, these, in, in Chorazin and Bethsaida and preaching to them and, and healing the sick and, and causing the blind to see, and they rejected him. And Jesus is saying that if I had gone to Sodom, they would have repented if I did the same things there. Now, God knows people's hearts. You can't really argue with Jesus. Jesus is saying this. And so he said, Sodom would have remained, and they would have listened if I did that for them. It, it, it wouldn't have been destroyed by fire. And he's saying it's more tolerable for Sodom than for an unbeliever in the day of judgment that has rejected what he's done. He's clearly talking about degrees of judgment here. Remember when I said that the Bible says, or maybe we didn't say this, I said this in the first service, but in, in the scripture it says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How many of you have ever heard that scripture before? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why do we need treasures in heaven? Store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Because, uh, because we're not just going to go there and sing kumbayas. We're going to live life they're, they're, we're going to need resources, and I don't know how they'll be applied, but I'm just going to call it money for now. We're going to need money to do business. We're building up an ERA for a reason, not just so we can look at it when we get to heaven and go, look at my silo, it's bigger than yours. Do you understand? It's for a reason. So he says, you can store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, equal and opposite. S similarly, on the other side of the equation, we can store up judgment. Look at Romans uh, chapter 2. Romans 1 revealed to us in week 1 of the series that God reveals himself to us personally, inwardly and outwardly he does that, but man rejected him. And then he says, because of that rejection in verse 5 of chapter 2, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are, look at this word, treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. So there's a ton of good theology in here, but every person, every person on either side of eternity will receive a righteous judgment in varying degrees based on how we lived our life here. Because of the way you're acting, he's saying in this particular text, the hardness of your heart, you are treasuring up wrath, more and more wrath, different levels and I want to say, I know this series is tough, I know this message is tough, and I'm really not trying to scare anybody. This is how I feel. I feel like what happened to me in January, when the doctor came in the room, and he's got his little, uh, whatever you call that, clipboard thing, and he's got the results, the test results of your physical condition. They're just, they're just the facts. I can't imagine what it must be like for a doctor to come in there and have to sometimes tell some people, the reality about your health, the reality about your, 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 your temporary life here. You're, if you don't, and he's basically saying, if you don't do X, Y, or Z, you're going to die. It's a fact. Here's, and, and that's what I feel about this. This is like one of these things where the Bible is saying, this is your future, but I have, the good news is, I have a cure that will completely change that future for the good. 
100% assurance, just as confident as I am about these facts on the future this way, I am equally confident if you will accept this cure, if you will swallow this pill, that whole thing can change. So we can, we can be assured of never being separated from God, and we can also be assured of having rewards for God if we will abide in him until that day. Are you tracking with me? And I'm basically saying I'm certain of the bad news, but I'm equally certain about the solution to the bad news. I'm not trying to scare. I'm just telling you the facts today. Please, please, please take the cure. Just don't feel alone about this, by the way. Sometimes you say, well, you know, this judgment thing, this is really tough. You know who's going to get a stricter judgment than virtually every single person in this room? Me. Me. The Bible says in James chapter 3, verse 1, uh, he who teaches will be judged more strictly. You'll have to give an account of every word that you said to some people. I have to give an account of every word of what I said to all y'all, as my wife would say. Yeah! So it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. The flip side is, if you do a good job, greater rewards. Greater rewards. I receive a stricter judgment, but I could receive, I could receive more rewards if we give our life to God. Remember I told you, it, it, you know, I, I would have acted differently if I knew there had been rewards at camp. Remember I told you that believers will be recompensed. When I was young, I had a problem with talking in class, and I'll close with this illustration. I had a big problem talking in class. You could ask my parents. They're here. I had a particular, uh, uh, I was going to call him a professor. He was not a professor, uh, but he was my English teacher in seventh grade, Mr. Clark. Mr. Clark had a military background, and he liked to run things very strack in his class. And so he came out with the rules in the beginning of the class, and he had them all on paper, all written out, maybe 10 rules written out. And at the bottom, you had to sign the paper that you agreed and understood the rules and that they would be applied and you were accountable for them. Well, when that piece of paper was being passed around the class after he explained them, of course, during the explanation I was talking, and, and of course, as it was being passed around, I was still talking. And so I can remember the piece of paper coming around. I'm like, what is this? What is this? The guy, and my buddy next to me just says, just sign it. Just sign it. So I just signed it. Just signed it. Pass that baby in on on with the semester we go. At the end of the quarter or end of the semester, uh, the marking period, I get my, my average. I go up to get my average. I have an 85. 85 for me, that's not bad. I had an 85. But when I got my grade, I got a 60. Because every time you talked according to the rules, he took one point off your final grade. 25 times I got caught. I can assure you I talked more than 25 times. So there was a certain amount of grace that was applied. And I can remember going up to Mr. Clark's desk, otherwise known as the judgment seat of Christ, for all intents and purposes, and appealing his decision, to which he just smiled at me, and he just said, see the paper? You signed it right here. <laughs> Sit down, Fry. And back I go, only to be equally concerned about having to go home and face the great white throne judgment with my mom and dad. And then my dad actually went in to talk to the teacher. I don't know if you remember this, Dad. But he went in to talk to the teacher, and he said, Too late, Papa Fry, because he signed this piece of paper. I told him what the rules were. How different might you live if you paid attention to what was written in the book? We all have a chance now to make some changes that might erase certain behaviors. But I want you to know God's not up there looking at you. God's not looking in there, can't wait to bust you. He's not up there, you know, like a Wizard of Oz, and you just can't wait to slam you, make a mistake. He's a loving father 
who gets disappointed when his kids don't really fulfill their potential and they don't do what he's asked them to do. Yes, he gets disappointed. And you might, you, you could be ashamed on that day if you don't do something about it, but he loves you. He's not trying to restrict you with the things that he's asking you to do. He's actually trying to help you. Actually, he knows you'll be happiest if you'll do it his way. And so I, I thought about this story. I thought about this, this boy. He, 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 he played on a football team, and his father never came to the games, and everybody else's parent came to the game, it seemed to him, and he was really depressed, and as a result, he didn't play very well, and he sat on the bench most of the time. And one day, his father died. And ironically, the whole team kind of rallied around him, and the very next game, they had several injuries on the field, and he was the last guy on the bench. And the coach was like, I feel like wrong even asking you to play. Do you want to play? He says, yeah, I want to play. The coach was stunned because he really didn't care about football. He was just riding the season out. Gets in the game, kid plays out of his mind, making tackles, played both ways, ran, 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 a, ran, a, ran a ball back for a touchdown, wins the game. He's instrumental in actually accomplishing the win. Everybody at the end of the game is like, what is the deal? And he said, I'll tell you what the deal is. It's the first time my father's ever seen me play because he was blind before, but in heaven he could see me. What you guys don't realize and what I don't realize sometimes is your dad's not blind. He's watching every single day you play the game right now. He's watching how you play the game. And how you play the game matters. And he's not watching, you know, because he can't wait to bust you. But he wants you to get off the bench and run the lane that he's asked you to run and put on the pads and run the position that you're called to, to, to play. And play it with, you know, the, the big picture in mind, with his win, not your win. Your father is up in heaven watching you. Every person at the great right throne judgment is an unbeliever. Every person at the judgment seat of Christ is a believer. You get to choose which judgment you attend, but only while you live on earth. Can you stand to your feet and let me pray for you? I'm way over time, way over, but it was necessary. Would you guys just close your eyes for a second and give the Holy Spirit just a minute? Last service, there were some people actually crying in the foyers. They couldn't get out of the building because the Holy Spirit was dealing with them so strongly. And you might not be one of those people, but maybe you should give God just a minute to speak to you right here, right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you, you, through this message? What's going to be like when you face God personally? Not in a big crowd like this, face to face. We'll all one day not look through a glass darkly anymore, but we'll see him face to face as he is. God wants you to be ready. God wants you to get ready now. If you're here today and you're not sure you're ready to meet him and be with him eternally, maybe the belief question has not been answered. Maybe you haven't accepted the grace of Jesus Christ and you need to you need to do that. Please. Please. Please do that. Maybe you need to pray with somebody after church today and just come up front and pray it through and make sure you got it. But it's really simple. You just say you just acknowledge God for who he is. You believe that he's the son of God who came into your life. He came into your world and came into the world to pay for your sin. He lived a sinless life. He lived to die so when you die, you could live with him forever. And he rose on the third day so that you could overcome in this life. That's what he did, and you believe that. And then you just confess, Jesus, you're my Savior, and you're my Lord. You could do that right there as you stand.
And if that's you and that witnesses to your heart and you just did that just now by faith, would you raise your hand and say, that was me. I just prayed that. I just, I just did that. That's me. God bless you in the back. Two of you at the back. Is there anybody else? God bless you, brother. Thank you so much. Is there anybody else that says, that was me. I just did that. I believe that. The Bible says when you do that, there's one more. There's on the front of it. Thank you. There's one more. The Bible says just every head by eye closed. When you did that, your name now is written in the book. If you did that, your name's written in the book. We want to help you, though, so make sure you tell somebody about it today. But your name's written in the book. Now, what about the books, everybody? If you want to have good things written in the books about you, you want to live for eternal rewards, and you know you haven't been really doing that to the fullest and to the best, and God's speaking in your heart and saying, you know what? I'm calling you, son. I'm calling your daughter. I want you to live at a higher level. I want you to live for me. Not to prove something, but to please me and to honor me and because you love me. If you know God's challenging you to live at that level, would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me? Good and high. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to I live for eternal rewards. Come on, good and high. I don't want to miss out on that. Be bold. The enemy's bold. He'll try to knock you out, take your life. He'll steal from you, whatever. Just keep it up. I'm going to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, for every person that's praying that, as their hands up, as an attendant of you, God, I pray that you see their hand. They don't want to, they don't want to live ashamed. They don't want to stand before God ashamed. We live, all of us, we live for an audience of one. I pray in Jesus' name that the conviction of the Holy Spirit touch people's lives. Lord, would they live for you. They live to put you first in every area of their life, God. That when they walk out of here, they're not the same. They're not like they were when they came in. They're different, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you give them a hunger and a thirst after the things of God, not the things of this world. And the world and all its appetites and all the things that it does to try to arrest our attention, Lord, I pray it pale in comparison to eternal rewards. Lord, I pray that we store up treasures in heaven for ourselves by how we live in the here and now, God. I pray that you prick our hearts, Lord, in such a way, Lord, that, that, that it tenderizes us where we're callous. Tenderize us, God. Make us Make us soft and sensitive to the Spirit's promptings. Help us to live selflessly like you lived for us, God, in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray we tell somebody what happened today. This day is marked in eternity. We didn't take it lightly. We took it seriously, Lord, and we abide in you until that day in Jesus' name. And everybody said, let's give the Lord a big hand clap all over the room.